Daniel chapter 10 is our text. Put in at verse 1. More and more, the word war is being used in regard to our relationship with China. You hear about the trade war or that we're headed to a new cold war with them. Some would say that we are actually already at war with China in the unseen cyber realm. An article on thenation.com writes this, little information is available on U.S.-Chinese cyber warfare. All that can be said with confidence is that an intense war is now being waged between the two countries in cyberspace. So apparently we can be at war and not even know it these days. In Daniel chapter 10, we're going to learn about another intense, invisible war. It's not just between two countries, but it spans the whole globe and all of human centuries. It's being waged in the spiritual realm where angelic beings engage one another, fighting, uh, each of them fighting on behalf of their respective kingdoms. While the outcome of these battles are absolutely decided, the fights have very real consequences in our world. As we start in on verse 1, we've come here to the final portion of the book. It's going to be the one last fantastic vision in the life of this incredible servant of God. Commentators will sometimes uh, break up the following three chapters, which all have to do with one singular vision as uh, chapter 10, the introduction, chapter 11, the vision, and chapter 12, the sort of postscript to that vision. So Daniel 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. This is three years after what we read last week in chapter 9. Daniel's probably about 90 years old at this point. The first group of Jews have already returned to Jerusalem, but by now the work had stopped. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings as we're studying the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we saw that there's a 15-year gap in the effort to rebuild the temple, right? And they had a lot of trouble and difficulty and hard times there. We're in that gap right now in Daniel 10. Now here we're told that Daniel received a message in a vision This message concerned a particular time described there in the New King James as long. The time was long. And scholars will point out that this is one of those difficult to translate Hebrew phrases. Uh, Its possible meaning is that it referred to things that were going to happen far in the future. The appointed time was long in fulfillment, and we'll see that that's true. It can also be translated as being about a great conflict or concerning a great war or that it was a vision which detailed suffering that was out of the ordinary in degree and magnitude. And what we're going to find as we move through these chapters is that all of these descriptors fit in with what was revealed to Daniel. Verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. So why was Daniel in mourning? There are a variety of reasons suggested for why Daniel is so upset here in verse 2. One of the reasons given is that he must have heard that the Jews who returned from exile had encountered difficulty and that the work on the temple had stopped. This, it suggested, broke Daniel's heart and caused him to mourn. A different suggestion is that after that relatively small group of Jews left Babylon for Judea, finally set free from exile, 
that Daniel then surveyed the state of the much larger group of God's people who were content to stay behind in their pagan land, and that that broke his heart. And he looked around and he said, I can't believe now that the exile is over, everybody, you know, the large majority just wants to stay here and hang out in Babylon. And so he was in mourning for that reason. A third option given is that Daniel had seen the terrifying vision that is going to be unfolded to us in the next three chapters, that he realized it signaled intense future suffering for God's people, that they would be brought almost to the point of extinction, and that that's what caused him to mourn. Now, his mental process simply isn't spelled out for us, and so we're left to guess and speculate and wrestle on it. At any rate, Daniel was mourning, and here's what his mourning looked like. Verse 3, I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Here's what I want us to note about this verse. Daniel's mourning, his upsetness, was done in a spiritual framework. You know, whatever was going on in Daniel's life, he was very consistently faithful to the Lord. Whatever was going on in his life, whether he was about to be executed by a madman like Nebuchadnezzar, or whether he was being promoted to the highest position in the government, or whether he was facing temptation, or whether he was given a message to share with someone, or all of these different things, no matter what was happening throughout these chapters, we see that he always approached each situation with a very heavenly mindset. His thought was not, how do I save myself, or what's the easiest decision for me to make, or what's going to make me most comfortable? His thought process consistently, verse and passage by passage, is what is the spiritual response to what's going on in my life right now? What is the godly response? They want me to eat the king's delicacies. What's the godly response to that? This crazy person's about to kill me, and everybody who's in this class of you know, magicians and wise men, what's the response to that? They told me I can't pray or they're going to throw me in a lion's den. What's the response to that? And it's a reminder to us of our responsibility as God's people to live with that same kind of mindset day by day, that as we live life and encounter all of these different situations and circumstances and decisions, that we really do need to choose to say, okay, what is the godly choice for me to make in this situation at work, in this uh, area of temptation or compromise I'm being faced with, in this area of spiritual warfare, in this area of blessing? In all these decisions, all these options, what is the godly decision? What is the spiritual decision? Paul the Apostle commanded us in Philippians 1.27 to, quote, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's not just about, you know, big things. Let your conduct on Sunday mornings be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Hey, no, you guys, let everything you're doing, the way you live your life, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter wrote this. He said, be holy in all your behavior." And so from those commands and from the example of men like Daniel, especially Daniel, we see that we cannot control our circumstances, and in many cases, we can't even control what sort of feelings flood into our hearts and into our minds, right? But we can walk worthy of Christ and his gospel. And that means that we follow Daniel's example and that we behave in a holy, spiritual way, even in the day-to-day decisions of life. If you're mourning, mourn like a Christian. 
If you're being promoted, ascend like a Christian should, ascend in holiness. If you're being tempted or assigned to do something or threatened in some way, whatever it is, look at Daniel's example. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Let your behavior be holy. Live like Daniel lived, thinking, okay, what is the godly, faithful, spiritual response to what's going on in my life today? Verse four, now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris. So pause there for a moment. You know what we learn here is that Daniel hadn't gone back with the returning exiles to Jerusalem. And we don't know why. A lot of speculation. We have to speculate a little, but we just don't know why. Now at his advanced age, it it probably would have been near impossible for him to make the trip. Again, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, this is not a pleasure cruise. This is not an easy trip to make. Daniel's an old man, uh, and so it probably would have been physically impossible for him to make the trip, not to mention his position in the Persian government. Perhaps the king just said, yeah, man, you're not going. (laughs) The exile for these other people is over, but you're staying here to do what you're supposed to do in our government. We don't know why, but we can be sure Right as we've walked with Daniel through this book, I think we can be pretty confident that he would have if he could have, right? That's the kind of guy Daniel was. After all, we saw that he was still setting his clock by the temple time, right? We've seen this before. He says, hey, this was about the time of the evening sacrifice. When there was no evening sacrifice, there was no temple, and he was just dreaming and imagining what it would have been like to be in the house of the Lord. We know how he had a real heart for the temple of God and for the people of God and for the city of God. I mean, these were still things that he really, really loved. And so what does this mean? It means that his still being in Babylon must have been a huge monumental mental disappointment for him on a personal level. I mean, think about it for a minute. Think about what you know about Daniel, about his faithfulness and his love for the Lord and his love for God's house and all of these things. And somehow he has miraculously lived all the way through the exile in Babylon. He was taken away early on. He lived all the way through faithfully. He never abandoned his God. He never compromised. He withstood Nebuchadnezzar. He withstood all these attempts on his life. He withstood all these areas of compromise. He made it all the way through. The Lord said, hey, guess what? The exile's just about over, and now the exile was actually over, and he can't go back. You're stuck in Babylon, man. That's where you're gonna finish out your string. I think this would have been, on a human level, just a monumental disappointment. Now, we, in this wonderful land of freedom and affluence and opportunity, we are used to getting what we want and usually getting it pretty fast. But the reality is that in our walk with Christ, that is not always how it's going to work. And this is one reason why it's so important for us to be purposefully developing our trust in the Lord. You know, we know through all of these stories that Daniel had piles upon piles of trust in God. Even when everything seemed impossible, even when it looked like on paper, well, your God failed, his temple is destroyed, you were taken captive, Daniel still had trust in the Lord. He said, I still know the Lord's gonna move, I still know the Lord is gonna do things, I still know the Lord is with me. He had all of this trust in the Lord, right? And so when disappointment came, and when disappointment comes to the life of a person who trusts in God, they're able to say things like, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And things like, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I mean, those are real statements of real trust. 
said by people who experienced real disappointment. And Daniel is an incredible example of being content in the Lord, even in the face of life-altering disappointment, even in the face of, of the kind of things he had to deal with where it said, hey, you thought you were gonna grow up as a faithful Jew in Jerusalem? Nope, you're gonna be taken captive, forced into servitude for Nebuchadnezzar and then these other guys. And then after all of that, you're not gonna get to go back. And yet he's here celebrating his faith in the Lord, trusting in the Lord, telling other people about the Lord. Great encouragement for us on how to deal with disappointment. Verse five says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. So the rest of our chapter revolves around this vision of what is commonly called the glorious man. In your Bible heading, it might even say that, the vision of the glorious man. And so the question is, okay, well, who is this? Well, this being is variously identified by commentators as either God, the Father, Gabriel, Michael, some unnamed superior angel, or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We call that a theophany, when Jesus would show up in the Old Testament before his incarnation. Now, most scholars line up in one of two camps. They either say, okay, this is a theophany, this is Jesus, or they'll say, well, it's just a powerful angel. Right, And the problem with saying that it's just an angel is that the description here is almost identical to what the Apostle John sees in Revelation 1. You turn over to Revelation 1, you see a being described almost identically as this, and that being is identified as Christ himself, as the Alpha and the Omega. And so if you were reading through the Bible and you had read Daniel and you got to Revelation for the first time, you would say, oh, we've seen this guy before. He's making a cameo in the New Testament. And he's identified as the Alpha and the Omega there. But some guys see a problem with identifying this being as Jesus because in verse 13 of our text, the angelic being who speaks with Daniel says that he wasn't strong enough to overcome a character known as the Prince of Persia and that Michael the archangel had to come and help out. And so they say, well, the glorious man can't be Jesus because after all, no you know, other being could be stronger than Jesus. Now, those who feel that way they interpret this chapter uh, by looking at it and say, okay, well, the only angelic being in this vision is this glorious man. There's nobody else uh, in the rest of the chapter. Uh, and they, there's only one angel here that is being seen and, and speaking to Daniel. However, there's no reason to think that there's only this one gold-girded being and no one else with Daniel in the rest of the verses. What seems to be happening and seems to fit most harmoniously with the rest of Scripture is that Daniel sees this glorious man, which is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, and then another heavenly being, an angel, comes and starts to speak with Daniel about what he's seen. And this sort of lines up with what we see in lots of other prophetic passages where the prophets are like seeing something, and then the Lord has an angel kind of you know, babysitting them a little bit and saying, here's what's going on, here's what you're looking at. We see that with the Apostle John, we see that with some of the other prophets. And so, in fact, depending on how you read the verses, there may even be a third angel in the mix, but we'll get to there. And so, when we look on this glorious man, 
it's clear that we are to be absolutely astounded with the power and the purity and the strength and the marvelousness of this individual. We're told that even his eyes and his voice are intense fountains of omnipotent strength. I was thinking about, you know, the eyes in general. If you're talking about weak parts of the body, you know, the eyes are the weak part. I remember being a youngster and it's like, hey, if you're ever kidnapped, go for the eyes. That's like a soft spot, right? Get a thumb in the eye and you're going to, you know, that's good. And then, you know, if they got you in a car, put it in reverse or something like that. And so uh, I was thinking about how, you know, eyes aren't very important in superhero movies right now, right? We're, our culture's really big into superhero movies right now. All these superheroes are getting their eyes put out every left and right, Thor and Nick Fury and all of these guys. But we look here, you know, what's considered small and superfluous to us, our culture cares about biceps and abs, right? Well, that's where real strength comes from. And we look at this being of the glorious man, every aspect of him is absolutely limitless in power and strength and majesty. There's no weak spot when it comes to the Lord. Everything about him is just overflowing with omnipotent power and strength. And Daniel uh, experienced that firsthand. Verse seven, and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. And yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. And so Daniel is totally overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord. This man, Daniel, who could look Nebuchadnezzar, the mad tyrant, right in the eye. This man, Daniel, who could spend a night in a den full of savage, hungry lions. A man who had multiple times been in the company of angels. This man who had helped oversee two of the greatest world empires the world had ever known. He catches a, a, a fleeting glimpse of the Lord and he just collapses. He's undone. He's got nothing left. He had complete inability to move or to stand. In fact, we'll see that he wasn't even able to speak or breathe without heavenly assistance. And you know, we would all do well to just dwell more on the unspeakable power of our God and, and how able and strong and majestic our God is. Verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And so guys divide here, and that's okay, but it would seem to me here that a new character enters at this point, right? A hand touched me, and someone starts talking to him, and it's an angel who helps lift Daniel onto his hands and knees and then speaks to him and eventually getting Daniel up onto his feet. He's being gentle uh, with Daniel here. And remember this, when God ministers to you, his child, his desire is to lift you. He's the lifter of our heads. He sets our feet on solid rock. He's not an abusive dad. He's not out to knock down his children. He's not cruel or mean-spirited. He wants to lift you up with the kind of tender, meaningful love that we see demonstrated here. Once again, Daniel is identified as one greatly beloved. We talked about this last week. And Daniel, for his part, 
man, he had no pride. He had no swagger. He had no confidence or anything like that. He was very humble throughout this whole scene. Despite all of his life experience, despite all of his spiritual success, despite the fact, as we've pointed out, he may have been the most righteous man on the face of the entire earth for many long years, right? By all of our sort of measurements as human beings. And he is nothing but humble, uh, nothing but uh, uh, small before the Lord. And so just as a side, beware of so-called ministers who behave, behave with arrogance or braggadocio. I mean, that, there's a certain kind of, of uh, you know, person peddling what they call ministry and they, they strut about with sort of bragging and brashness and arrogance. And, you know, the Bible says that God resists the proud and that they cannot stand in his presence. We see Daniel, this incredibly humble man, he couldn't stand in God's presence. And so just, just be careful. You know, if you make the mistake like I do from some time to time just kind of scrolling through Twitter, and oh, man. And I think, man, what, who writes some of this stuff, you know? But just be careful about the voices that are speaking to you and, and pause and think for a minute, wait a minute, you know, I read this on Facebook, I read this on Twitter, what kind of person is speaking to me? Are they the kind of person that thinks that they can strut into the presence of God or are they the kind of person that we see Daniel being here? Verse 12, and then he said to me, do not fear Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. Now, before we get to what's next, take this to heart. Your prayers are heard, and they matter a whole lot. God responds to the prayers of his people, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. This passage not only proves that God responds to the prayers of his people, but it also gives us a good lesson on why we should keep praying for things until we're given a response or until we're told to stop. Remember that famous episode in the New Testament, Paul's praying multiple times about the thorn in his flesh, and the Lord says, hey, stop praying about that. My grace is sufficient for you. Okay, then he's done praying about that. But until we get a response for something, as long as we're praying about something that is godly and that is in the will of God, keep praying for it. And this text gives us a great object lesson of why that is good and important. Verse 13, the angel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So this angel very casually takes Daniel and us through the looking glass here and shows us the unseen spiritual realm where a cosmic war is being waged. The prince of Persia here cannot be a man, for no man could stand up against an angel. Remember, one angel killed over 180,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, right? Every time we see an angel show up to earth, what happens to everybody? They just fall over. The death angel, you know, comes through Egypt and just wipes everybody out. A human being can't stand up against an angel. And we notice there that when it says the prince of Persia, then the same word is used about Michael, who we know is an archangel. He's one of the chief princes, right? And so they're the same sort of class of being. They're both angels, right? And so here we're being told about something just absolutely mind-blowing that's going on in the heavenly realm that has impact on our world and what we learn is that there are holy angels and fallen angels. They are organized in a way not unlike a military, and that some of these angels are assigned to specific geographic locales. 
Their role is to influence the human societies and leaders in that location on behalf of either God or Satan. So this holy angel talking to Daniel says, I had been left alone with the kings of Persia. I was there helping to minister and, and, and influence these guys. And we know, right, from this book of Ezra and the things that were going on, that the kings of Persia were looking favorably upon God's people, the Jews, right? Makes sense. But at the same time, we see that there was this prince of the kingdom of Persia on the other side, and he was there to withstand against the angel that's talking to Daniel. Now, this is an incredible thing for God to reveal to us. You know, in the New Testament, we're told about how people and governments are under the sway of spiritual forces, that there are powers and principalities acting in ways we cannot perceive. The, those, there's passages about that and teaching about that. They're somewhat gen, general and somewhat vague. And here, we get a real example of, oh yeah, here's what was happening. While you were praying for 21 days, I was like doing battle with this guy who is assigned, his, his you know, territory was the kingdom of Persia, and that's my territory as well. And this has many implications for us as God's people. First of all, it gives us a lot of reason to be in prayer for our leaders and the leaders of the world. We're commanded in the New Testament to pray for our leaders. Whether we voted for them or not, we're supposed to pray for them and lift them up. And here's a good reason why. It's not just because, oh, it's the right thing to do. We need to pray for these people. Look what's going on here in the heavenly realm. And so we want to be praying for them, that God would be influencing them for good. Second, it means that when we as free individuals in a democratic society go to the voting booth, listen, it's not enough to just have the right man or woman in office from the human perspective. We should be doing whatever we can to not just advance who we think is right, but the person we think is righteous into those positions, right? Because what good is it to have the right person for the job if they're going to be influenced by the forces of evil? No, we want people like Daniel to be in positions of leadership and positions of influence and positions of power. Now, not a lot of those kinds of people run for office, right? But that's something we really want to think about. As we go to the voting booth, we can't just say, well, I just always vote for the lesser of two evils. There's got to be a way that we can promote righteousness. And the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, not the lesser of two evils exalts a nation. And so we need to be looking for people like Daniel and his three friends. There are people like that. And we need to choose to trust the Lord and say, okay, I'm going to vote for the righteous person not the easy way, not the compromise way. I want to vote for who I think Daniel would vote for. It, has, it does no good to have a well-qualified person if that person is going to be then corrupted by sinister forces. Third, when it comes to prayer, we should be greatly encouraged by how this played out. Just because it seemed like nothing was happening for three weeks does not mean that nothing was happening. In fact, something intense and significant was happening behind the scenes, and the same is true of your prayers. Lord, I've been praying for this for three weeks. Lord, I've been praying for this for three decades. Nothing's happening. That person isn't getting saved. That person isn't returning to you. I haven't received that healing. If there's no response and you haven't been told by the Spirit to stop praying about those things, keep praying because things are happening that we cannot perceive and that we cannot predict things behind the scenes, and so keep praying. In this case, the holy angel who was stationed in Persia had been instructed to go and speak with Daniel, but as he set out on that mission, he was engaged in battle with his fallen counterpart. It's not clear exactly how this conflict took shape. 
I don't know if they were doing angel jiu-jitsu or maybe they were using natural means there in the palace of Persia. Maybe they were fighting using, you know, natural goings-on in the kingdom of Persia and that that's how it was uh, playing out. But either way, at that point, they were in a stalemate, and neither party was retreating, and neither party could tip the scales. And so Michael, an archangel, who, by the way, the chief of the angels is assigned to the protection of Israel, we're told, in chapter 12, he tags in. It's WWF. He tags in with a metal folding chair for a minute, and he comes in to fight this prince of Persia so the other angel can get on with his mission to speak to Daniel. Verse 14. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Once again, the focus of this prophetic message is the nation of Israel, and the scope of the vision will cover the near future for Daniel, all the way till the establishment of the kingdom after the second coming of Jesus Christ, future for us. Chapters 10 through 12 are all about this vision. That's a quarter of the entire book. Uh, last time we talked about how the 70 weeks vision is one of the most important prophecies in all the Bible, and that's true. It's just like four verses. This is a quarter of all Daniel is dedicated to this vision. And as we move through it in the coming weeks, we'll see that it is complex and detailed. Verse 15, when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground. I became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. And so some feel that the entrance of a third angel here uh, is seen that you have the glorious man who's Christ, then speaking angel arrives at verse 10, and then a third angel appears in verse 16 to minister to Daniel. And we see him calling it my Lord, but the word there is just for sir. He's being respectful to this guy. He's not calling him Jehovah or anything like that. Daniel's words here are what incline me to think that his mourning back in verse two has to do with the fact that he had seen the suffering of God's people in his vision that is now going to be explained to him in the coming chapters. In chapter 12, verse 7, here's how that vision is described, that the power of the holy people has been completely shattered. That would be a hard thing to see and to understand for a man like Daniel who loved God's people so much and was looking at his contemporary uh, happenings and saying, but wait, God's people just got set free from exile to go home and start worshiping again. And so it would have been a very hard vision to receive. A great devotional thought here is to once again notice the tender mercy that the Lord gave to Daniel, his weakened servant. Three times in this text, Daniel is strengthened by the Lord and his angels. God doesn't yell at him to toughen up. He comes with a personal touch and helps him and strengthens him and lifts him. The Lord's ministry is the helpful kind. He is our compassionate father. He understands our weakness. He's not offended by it. He remembers us in our weakness, the Bible says, and supplies our every need. Verse 18, then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be to you, be strong. Yes, be strong. Pause right there. That's the character of God's feelings toward you. His word is given to build you up, not to condemn you, but to invigorate you. And that's for Christians, by the way. If you're not a believer here tonight, then God's word does condemn you. 
It reveals the fact that you are still in your sin, you don't belong to the Lord, and you are condemned to death and eternal punishment in hell unless you receive Christ Jesus as Savior. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way. The Bible says that you are not in the beloved unless you've been adopted as a son or daughter through faith in Christ. And so if you want these words about being greatly beloved and having peace and having fear cast out and being strengthened by this God who loves so much, well, you need to be in the beloved. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can talk to you about that after service if you wanna know more about it. Verse 19 continues, and so when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. By earthly standards, Daniel's days of strength were over, but God is always able to invigorate us for service, no matter how weak we may be or feel. And notice here, God's word in Daniel's life, the word of God came to him and said, be strengthened, and God's word actually made a difference. It actually had legs to stand on. It was an effective grace. And so the question for each of us to pose to ourselves is, okay, does God's word actually give me power for living? Or is it just something that I read from time to time and then it just sort of evaporates away? Because it should be effective. It should give us the legs to stand on. It should invigorate us for the life that we're living. That's what it's designed to do. And so apply God's word and let it do its work. Verse 20, and then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Verse one of chapter 11, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up, confirmed, and strengthened him. This angel would have to return to the front lines and fight once again. But before that, he'd flesh out this final vision for Daniel. It would, of course, be in line with all the prophecies he had already seen starting way back in chapter two when Daniel was just a young man and then on through the long decades of Babylon. Uh, they would all line up together, all speak of God's same program for prophecy. We learn here that God's prophetic plan is written down. It's set in stone in something called the scripture of truth. This refers to some sort of unchanging document in heaven. We know that heaven has a library. We've talked about this before. Now, there's a theological position out there called open theism that suggests that God doesn't actually know how things are going to play out. He's simply super powerful and therefore reacting to what we're all doing down here. But texts like this one show that the Lord absolutely has a plan, and that's absolutely what's going to happen. He has a will, and he will have his way. And while he has given mankind a free will, his prophetic plan will come to pass in the particular way he has revealed. One more quick and passing application before we close. We see how angels here help each other out. I love that. He's like, I called Michael. He helped me out. We're helping each other. We see how they labor with one another. In the church, of course, we too are commanded to bear one another's burdens and build each other up. And we want to fight alongside, arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, tag in when you need to tag in to help your brother or sister out. So Daniel 10 gives us a shocking look into what's going on in the heavenly realm around us. But the Bible goes further than that and says that these things aren't just going on around you, but that you are part of the fight too. We have been drafted into this war and told to get the full armor of God on so that we can do our part. Excuse me. Isn't, isn't that kind of above my pay grade? 
But the Bible says, no, yeah, you're a believer now. That's wonderful. Guess what? You get the full armor of God so that now you can be part of this process too, so that you can resist the devil, so that you can struggle with principalities and powers and all of those sorts of things. The Bible tells us that it's not just heavenly angels contending with fallen angels, that we're also wrestling against principalities and powers. It's like those scenes in the movies where like the hero is trying to get you know, some person to safety. And there's always a point, you know, where they hand them the pistol and they say, do you know how to use this? <laughs> I think so. They never know how to use it. Quick story before we go on. One of my, one, when I was in college, one of my criminal justice classes, we had to go on a ride along. And so I went on, with, on a ride along here in Lemoore with one of the officers and we got in the car and I had met him before and he's a great guy and everything. And so we got in the car and before he started going, he says, you, do you know how to use a shotgun? I said, yeah. He said, this is the release. Should you need to use it, please use it. I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but that's kind of, and I'm thinking, I'm not, I, hope this, <laughs> I hope I'm not involved in a shotgun fight tonight. And it was all fine. But man, think about this. Think about the spiritual war that's going on according to the Bible. And then the New Testament comes along and says, hey, you've been drafted into that fight. Don't worry, you have the full armor of God. You do need to put it on though. Because this is what's going on, and you're a part of it. As God empowers you to do wonderful things to help accomplish the will that he is going to accomplish. And so you're in the fight already if you're a Christian, whether you see it or not. And so put on your equipment, take aim, make your stand, and fight for the Lord. Amen?